and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show on climate and energy issues by young people, for all people. My name is Evan, and for the past week, we've had a break from The Renewable Generation, but that hasn't meant a break from work. Stephen and Kelly, how have you been dealing with your work lives the past couple weeks? Um, yeah, so I just took a couple weeks off, kind of unplanned, because I just reached my uh, breaking point in quarantine. So I took a couple weeks off, which was actually much needed. Um, so this week I was back at work doing doing the same old stuff. Um, but there's a lot of changes afoot at my company. So um, one of them that um, is publicly has been publicly announced is that we're selling off one of our subsidiaries called Direct Energy, which is a retail electricity and natural gas supplier in the U.S. So that's a huge move. It was like two, uh, $3.625 billion ca- all-cash transaction. So for our company, I think it'll give us some of the money that we need to finance our transition to being renewable. And for energy, the buyer increases the number of customers they have, um, retail customers in the U.S. So I think on the whole, it's like good deal for both sides. But we shall see how the actual deal ends up shaking out. That's that's awesome. It's great to hear that stuff, Kelly. Um, yeah, work at New Energy Equity is, is going well. Um, we're doing we're doing. Uh, very well financially. I'm very happy to say we're very healthy right now during everything that's going on. Solar is very profitable at this time. Um, and uh, yeah, we've been, you know, just expanding the, port- the portfolio and um, things are definitely like uh, picking up right now. Uh, yeah. But in my own personal life, not, not really much has changed, you know, just been reading a lot more, um, reading a book right now about evolution and um, how we kind of tend to think that society and all these things in society are deliberate and planned. And um, really, in reality, it's a, a lot of these processes tend to be more spontaneous, uh, like very, very scientifically, like spontaneous, just like natural selection. Um, right now, I'm reading about law. That law, we think law is very deliberate and, um, and rationally thought about, but actually it's kind of um, this idea of common law, which um, laws kind of form on the fringes here and there, little battles being decided this way or that way, and then it gets kind of sprung up um, through that. We can delete some of this, by the way. I just thought it was really cool. I'm really obsessed with this book right now. Steven, I heard that uh, there's a new committee at work that you're in charge of. Could you talk to us a bit about that? Oh, uh, yes. So um, we have started a, um, a committee called the Thought Leadership Team, and uh, as of this week, I'm officially like the chair of the Thought Leadership Team, so... You know, you know, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, you you must be a special kind of chair made out of carbon fiber where the carbon has been directly captured from the atmosphere and used in advanced technology to create this ultralight chair for you to sit in while you opine about the future of energy um, on behalf of your company and on behalf of this podcast. So, thought leadership chair. Damn right. Yeah, I hope to be a at least... At, at least a carbon neutral chair, if not carbon negative. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> well, look at look at Stephen and Kelly bringing in the humor on an early Sunday morning. <laughs> you love to see it. I've I've been practicing this joke, man. This is this is not the first time. This is a. I'm. I, she was rehearsing this in front of the mirror <laughs> earlier today. <laughs> it's like stand stand up comedian. Okay, they have they have to spend time coming up with their content. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, this is just your your dry run. You're practicing it in front of this crowd before you go up on stage later tonight. Oh yeah, at the UN Climate Conference. That's that's my yeah. audience. It's a tough tough crowd, you know. So I got I gotta 
got to do some shows to practice first. Real tough crowd. So um, we were talking about your guys' companies, but um, and your guys' companies both uh, have a vested interest in being carbon neutral and working towards uh, increasing sustainability. But what about other companies? What does it mean to be a company that's leading on sustainability in 2020? Yeah, I think um, that's a, it's a great question, and I think it's one that um, I know Kelly and I we both think about a lot, um, specifically with our companies. Um, so I think, first of all, with sustainability, I think there tends to be two ways that employees tend to think about it within their company. Um, I think it's like internal sustainability and external sustainability. So internally, what I mean by that is like kind of like the culture of sustainability. Um, like, you know, when you walk into the kitchen area, um, you know, you can have a bunch of uh, single-use plastic items, for example, things that you just, you know, plastic fork that you use once and then throw it away in the trash and then it's going to sit for, you know, thousands of years in a landfill. Um, things like that. You have a bunch of plastic water bottles or do people in general um, recommend using like a plastic cup or a different kind of cup? Um, you know, what kind of coffee um, are you getting? Do you have just like Keurigs, like single-use Keurigs or are you using kind of uh, more like wholesale, like bulk items? Um, you know, what kind of uh, snacks do you guys have? There's, there's all these little um, signaling things that, that companies do to kind of communicate this culture. Um, and a lot of a lot of companies are starting to take those more deliberately and trying to move towards sustainability, even like even adding like you know recycling and uh, composting options um, for disposal. And a lot of other companies are kind of not doing that so much um, and are just kind of uh, behind the curve in that in that transition. Um, so that's like the internal kind of the cultural uh, norms, but there's also what I would argue is the larger piece of that pie, which is what is your actually what is your company actually doing in its business operations in the real world and in, in like in the scope of you know the global scope or whatever however big your company is, are you guys you know are you an oil company are you just drilling for oil are you a coal company are you a a, a taxi company or a, you know company like a, a American Airlines. So there are lots of now different considerations now when you start talking about external to the company, like what are you actually doing um, with the company operations? I think um, um, the, the EPA kind of tends to lay out those three, um, lay, out, lay out how you can think about those um, impacts in like three different scopes. So I think Kelly can speak to this a little better than I can. So Kelly, you want to talk about these three scopes? Yeah. So I would say um, there's three scopes of emissions, scope one, two, and three. It's not just defined by the EPA, actually. It's like an internationally accepted um, standard for how organizations should report on their emissions. Um, so in addition to the EPA, there's also non-governmental organizations like CDP, formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project, um, that basically encourage companies to report on their emissions from all three scopes. Um, so basically, scope one is the mo it's essentially direct emissions. So it's like, what are things, what are emissions that are coming from sources that the company directly owns? So for instance, if you own a vehicle and it drives around and it burns gasoline, that's part of scope one. If you're in a building, the building burns natural gas for heating, that's part of scope one. If you own a coal power plant, scope one. Um, Whereas scope two, specifically, I think this is the one that actually a lot of companies have done the most in addressing. It's the emissions from purchased electricity and heat. So this is like if you have, 
if you're, for instance, supplied by, let's say, PG&E, how many, uh, how much carbon emissions are associated with your electricity supply contract? If you decide that you want to secede from PG&E, and then let's say you're using East Bay Community Energy and you sign up for a hundred percent renewable uh, tariff from them, then your scope two emissions become zero because you're technically not um, emitting anything from that. Um, so. There's some issues that peop- that some more sophisticated companies are raising with Scope 2, specifically like if you have this um, essentially financial construct where you claim to be purchasing 100% renewable energy, even if there isn't that enough renewable electrons produced at the exact time that you're consuming them, but it averages out over the course of the year, you can claim to be 100% renewable. A lot of companies, um, particularly Google, are trying to move beyond that and actually match the um, electricity production of renewables with consumption on a 24-7 basis. Um, We can dive into that a bit later. So scope three is um, basically upstream and downstream emissions. So it's like, what is your supply chain? So for instance, let's say you're Apple, you have a lot of suppliers that produce parts. Are these suppliers factories running on 100% renewable electricity? Maybe not. Um, Or downstream emissions, this is something like the use of sold products. So if you're an oil company, the emissions from people who buy your oil burning it is like over 90% of their total emissions, which is why oil companies are like, oh, our oil refineries are powered by hydro. Like, sure, good for you, but then the oil that you're creating is being burned for uh, and releasing tons of emissions. So is that, are are you really green? Like, no. Um, and so I think um, scope three is definitely the toughest category for um, companies to crack just because there's so much that you you can um, take responsibility for. So companies, I think a lot of the time they don't address their entire scope three emissions. They some they sometimes start with some of the easier categories like business travel. They're like, okay, maybe we shouldn't be having our executives flying first class um, to multiple continents every week. And especially with COVID, I think that's something that's been happening a lot. But basically what companies choose to focus on is dependent on their like level of sophistication, how long they've been working on it. A lot of these companies, um, particularly Microsoft, um, they have these sustainability teams of people who are like really focused on trying to do the right thing. And they've been working on this for many years. So they have a lot of different um, programs of things that they're trying to do. Um, And a lot of other companies that maybe are a bit more behind, um, I guess they haven't been doing as much and they're just trying to get into it now. So I have a fairly simple question that might yield a simple answer, but Who's in charge of measuring these scopes, and when did that measurement start? Yeah, I. I it's funny because I was exactly about to say that point, Evan, which was that the, one of the hard, the really hard things about scope three emissions is that how do you even start to measure these things? Like, if you're going to try to reduce something, you need to have a good metric on it. And there's an old saying in in business in business books and business circles, which is like, um, any anything you start to track, you start to um, sorry, anything you start to measure, you start to manage. Um, so yeah, I, um, Kelly, you, you can probably speak better to this than I do. I don't really know anything good. So there's this organization called CDP, which I mentioned earlier. They basically, um, kind of serve as the clearinghouse for basically making all these companies disclose. And there's like thousands of companies that disclose their emissions to CDP, um, through their framework. And it's not just emissions. It's also stuff about like corporate governance, Um, So in addition to, so you do have to have your emissions verified by a third party. So they have, um, I think my company, we have PwC verifying our emissions models and like our emissions figures. 
Um, I don't know if we do that every year. I think we might do it like every five years or something because it is very expensive to have PwC come in and verify like every single gram of carbon that you've ever emitted. Um, I think so. There's a lot of consulting companies as well that specialize in emissions uh, measuring. So when you when you first start doing it, I think they'll do something called a materiality assessment, basically like a rough estimate of where most of your scope three emissions are coming from based on what kind of company you are and like some basic data about your operations. They'll look at things like your utility bills um, to help you determine your operations. I think some of these companies also have specific software that allows you to track your suppliers. So if you're a supplier, um, if they're like in this database, then I think you can as like someone who purchases from them, you can basically pressure them to adopt um, more renewable energy solutions. So this is something that a lot of companies are increasingly interested in because they want to, because especially consumers now, especially young people like us, we really want to be consuming um, products that are um, sustainable. Um, just that I think there's a lot of very confusing messaging and like lack of certifications and a lot of people don't know what these different claims that companies are making mean. They're like, oh, you know, carbon negative, that sounds bad because that's negative. Maybe we got to say we're climate positive. And it's just like people are really just in real time trying to figure out how to frame these things. So I have a fairly uh, antagonizing pitch uh, to both of you guys. Uh, pitch me why your company is acting in better faith to be carbon neutral than the other and tell me what they could be doing right now to be acting in better faith. Oh. Comparing mine and Kelly's. Oh, I, I, have, a, I have a lot of ideas. So <laughs> Yeah, yes. So Centrica versus New Energy Equity, what are they doing better than the other and what could they be doing better themselves? So first of all, um, I'll say that like this is not a drag on New Energy Equity at all. But what I will say is that because we're a much larger company, we're able to bring in a bunch of different technologies. So um, one thing that we're doing increasingly is um, we want to help customers with um, carbon transparency and just having better, just better, grand, more granular knowledge about where their carbon emissions are coming from. So one of the criticisms of Scope 2 in particular... Wait, one thing, can I just jump in for a second and define that Kelly works for a, a utility. So that's just the context. Yeah, here. okay, I guess I'll... So let me explain what... Um, my company does. So uh, Centrica, um, the parent company, is a British utility. Um, so they do retail electricity and natural gas supply in the UK. However, there's, um, we're also basically like a diversified energy company. So we do a lot of stuff. I just mentioned we sold off our um, utility arm in the US. My group, Centrica Business Solutions, um, basically provides renewable uh, distributed energy resources, um, and energy storage and um, insights technology to uh, commercial and industrial customers. So that's the perspective. So I've actually been doing a lot of work on like looking into corporate sustainability recently, which is why I kind of I'm like, oh, I know this like scope one stuff because we like did a whole study about it. Um, so what I will say is because we're a bigger company and we have more resources, we can actually provide these integrated solutions. So we have a platform where customers can see um, where all their emissions are coming from. They, we sell them like solar, energy efficiency, um, batteries, demand response, 
um, and a, a whole suite of different um, technologies. So we, as a larger organization, like we have purchased a lot of startups to like get their technology so that we can integrate it into our solutions. So that's not a drag on startups at all. I'm just saying like these large, it's um, similar to, I guess, what Shell is doing um, with Shell New Energies. They're just trying to buy a bunch of technologies and then figure out how they can put it all together. And I think that it's, it's also worth mentioning that like utilities and and like developers, solar developers like my company, they're like such different companies. They, they're both in the energy sphere for sure, but utilities are humongous corporations. And my company has like 27 people in it. Um, so when we are comparing them, just it, it won't be super apples to apples, but I still think it's a fun thought experiment. So you want to keep going? So I've said like some good things about our company, but I will say here's some criticism. So our legacy is as a company. So our utility in the UK is called British Gas. So that tells you a bit about where our legacy is. We um, do still own, I think, like a 60-something percent stake in this company called Spirit Energy, which is a fossil fuel extracting company. They announced last year that they're selling it off, but I'm like, I think um, we've seen leadership by some companies like BP where they've said, you know what, we're going to just write off some of our fossil fuel assets. Um, so I think with Spirit Energy, my personal hope is that um, they do a study and then determine that the like, because right now the cost of oil is low. So if you're writing it off right now, you're not going to take that big of an L on your balance sheet. Um, I mean, you, you are taking an L, but it's not like horrendous. I think um, we were selling it off in part because we needed cash, but because we just got so much cash from this direct energy sale, I don't think that the amount of money that they're going to get from the sale of Spirit Energy is going to be that substantial in comparison. And I think it would be a great um, thing for us to do to show environmental leadership and that we're serious about the energy transition. Um, so, I mean, that's just my personal view. It does not reflect the views of um, senior leadership or management at my company. That's just my personal view as a private citizen that I think um, we should show leadership by um, getting rid of our um, legacy assets and fossil fuels and um, sh showing our commitment to a clean energy future. Nice disclaimer right there at the end, Kelly. I'll start with my disclaimer as well. So I'll say that this is my views of Stephen Chan and not the views of New Energy Equity, <laughs> even though I am the thought leadership chair now. So maybe maybe it is a little bit of New Energy Equity. So, <laughs> so I guess there's an asterisk there. But um, I would start off with saying the bad stuff. So for New Energy Equity, we are a mature startup, I would say. We're kind of transitioning away from startup. Soon I won't be able to say startup at all. But we, we were founded about seven years ago. And upon bootstrapping and kind of growing as a company, we didn't have all the resources um, that, you know, another a bigger company would have. So there was, I think, in terms of, you know, harkening back to earlier when we were talking about the internal culture of the company, the internal culture for a long time wasn't extremely sustainable. We did, we lived, we had a small little office space and we like use plastic forks and knives and um, like throw away paper plates. And, you know, we weren't super mindful about um, personal individual trash and waste and things like that. Um, though I would say to be fair that our external impacts have been pretty outsized for a company our size. We've, we've been, um, you know, installing hundreds of megawatts of solar, um, and that, that has, I think, a very extremely large impact because those solar panels live for like 25 years of life as well. So, you know, just to give you both sides there, um, we do, I think we do have some internal culture, uh, work to do in terms of sustainability. Um, but we are doing great stuff on, on our company mission. You know, our company mission at the end of the day is to is to um, really be the frontier and the leader in clean energy development and deployment and change the world, leaving behind 
a better legacy. We're trying to improve everything that we touch and leave it better than it was before we got there. Um, and um, and that being said, so yes, we developed solar, right? That's all good. I mean, let me give you a little reality check here too. We're developing solar. We're it's all good, and I want you all to think you know highly of us. But technically, we cannot take credit for the for the renewable and for the for the environmental benefit of it because when you create a solar panel or solar system, you create the energy, and there's also a thing called an SREC, and that's a lot of how um, finance financing works in solar. The SREC is called a Solar Renewable Energy Credit, um, and essentially, what it means is um, that is the part of the solar that claims to be environmentally beneficial. And what we do, and that has a monetary value on it because certain states set um, mandates. They say, for example, in Maryland, um, we, they just passed 50% clean energy by 2030. And that makes, there's a market, there's a whole market, just like the stock market, it's a market for sol- for SRECs and wind, wind credits as well. So all of a sudden the, the value of an SREC went up over 100%. So we actually sell those SRECs off to other buyers. And so that's because, so then when we do that, certain companies can claim, oh, we are, um, that we, we bought, you know, 100,000 extracts last year. And so therefore we are very environmentally friendly. So this comes back to this like carbon offsets. And this is the way like that financing happens. Like a certain company can say we are environmentally friendly because we bought many extracts. And so technically speaking, new energy equity does not claim any of those environmental benefits. So all that we are is an, is an energy company, not really a uh, environmentally friendly one, technically. I, I was just going to say um, a lot of uh, corporations are really interested in buying these as well to show that they're compliant and that they themselves are 100% renewable. So they buy these renewable certificates, even though it doesn't necessarily jive with the time that they're actually consuming energy. So I think that's something that um, a lot of advanced companies are trying to um, make moves on, but it's still something that um, the like accounting system as a whole is trying to catch up with as well. And now it's time for Evan's Climate Fact of the Day! Did you know, for every plastic straw beverage you consume, a sea turtle gets radicalized into an anti-human hate group funded by city pigeons? Cuckoo! <laughs> that was <laughs> Evan's Climate Fact of the Day! Thanks for the sound effects, guys. <laughs> it really uh, brought it all together. So uh, we we got into a lot of debate about your guys' companies in the first half of the podcast, but maybe you guys could tell me about some companies that aren't New Energy Equity or Centrica that are uh, that are being a good example of what it means to be a sustainable business. Okay, I'll just start off with talking about Microsoft, and let me start off start off by saying so many people have have uh, you know really criticized Bill Gates throughout his career. Um, and at the end of his career, he's no longer part of Microsoft and stuff, right? He's gone and everything, but Microsoft still remains and still is a corporate behemoth that it is. And it's a prominent leader, if not the number one leader in corporate sustainability in the world. So let me just say, you know, for all the critics out there, for all the cap- critics of capitalists, that there are tremendous benefits and Microsoft is one of those examples. So Microsoft recently... Um, has made a claim, has made the announcement that they will be carbon negative by 2030. Carbon negative, which means they're going to go actually be removing carbon emissions from the atmosphere, and that they're going to be removing all historical carbon emissions by 2050. So this is one of when we were talking about scope one, two, and three. This this announcement includes scope three. 
they're saying they're going to be carbon negative by 2030 and, and removing all historical carbon emissions by 2050, not just of Microsoft, but of all of their supply chain and every one of their partners along those uh, along that supply chain. Um, so that's, that's incredibly difficult to manage. Um, and one of the ways that they're actually doing it, which I think is a really um, efficient and intelligent way to do it, is by an internal carbon price mechanism. So what they're doing is setting up um, within every uh, what's the word every department of Microsoft. They're setting up like a a, a cost on price uh, a price on carbon. So they're saying, for example, that every ton of carbon that you emit costs twenty bucks or something like that. I think fifteen, but yeah, it doesn't matter. Okay, fifteen, fifteen bucks per per ton of carbon emitted in your department. So every department, let's call it accounting, or let's call it the account, the Department of uh, Human Resources, or the Department of Legal, or the Department of uh, you know Product Development. Each one of those has its own carbon pricing mechanism, and and so essentially what they're doing is creating incentives for the for your own department to figure out how to save how, how to not emit carbon on your on your own self. What, what I'm saying is it sets up an incentive mechanism, um, and it says it's it's unique. And it, each department can decide on their own how they want to get there. At the end of the day, it's it's just it's their loss, right? So that department itself will just lose that money on its own. Like they might lose over a hundred thousand dollars if they're not careful about carbon. So it's in their best interest um, through capitalism, essentially, to figure out a way to account for carbon and to stop reducing it. Um, yeah, so I would just issue a slight correction. It's not um, like these functional groups that are the divisions that have to do carbon. It's not like HR or accounting. I think accounting, they're the people who are actually in charge of keeping track of all the internal um, money, essentially. It's more like, okay, like let's say like Azure. They are the ones that definitely produce the most electricity. And so they're like, okay, like this is the amount of carbon tax that you have to pay. And then I think um, any all the carbon taxes actually go to pay for sustainability programs. So that's how the sustainability programs at Microsoft, I think that's how they're funded, um, is through this internal carbon tax mechanism. They also um, basically make the Azure team also um, have to account for their energy costs, which encourages them to be energy efficient. Like the amount of energy that these data centers use is so insane. If you can reduce it by like 0.0000001%, you're saving the company millions of dollars. You as an employee probably not going to see any of that directly, but um, you are making like the emissions impact you're having by making that tiny change is actually pretty huge. So I think um, the internal accounting. Um, so it's it's by like functional groups. So it it would be like Azure and then maybe like Office, um, Teams. I don't know. We that's just some of the products that I know about. Windows maybe. So it wouldn't it wouldn't be like func by functional group. It would be by product. Um, and one thing that also has really impressed me about Microsoft is that they are take their responsibility as a company that has a lot of power very seriously. So they spend a lot of effort um, on investing in the communities where they have data centers because they're there providing jobs, but they also want to be a force for good in the community. And so um, our good friend Holly Beal, who we had on an earlier episode on the podcast, she's the program manager program manager for data center community environmental sustainability. So she basically um, is someone who works with the communities on implementing these sustainability projects and they do community events. The employees there um, are really like it helps empower them um, and makes them feel like their jobs are meaningful. She actually, um, I think, 
a couple of years ago, she wanted to hire um, someone to help her because she's like, I have like 15 projects. It's too much for me to handle. I need someone to help me. And they're like, we don't have budget to do it. And she's like, you know what? Then I'll just empower the employees in the data centers to actually do projects that they personally care about that they think would impact their community in a positive way, empower them because ultimately it's like not her decision as someone who's like in the HQ, like telling them like, oh yes, this is the thing that we should do. It's just her role to kind of facilitate these connections and empower people to pursue their own projects. And I think that's a model of leadership that I think in our government as well, we should um, be um, encouraging that. It's just like, if you have power, just share resources with other people and allow them to determine their own futures. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we can even, uh, other companies are doing the same thing. Like Apple is also doing this. Um, they are, they're saying, well, they are already carbon neutral for their global corporate operations, but they have plans to be carbon neutral across all of its business segments, uh, manufacturing supply chain and products lifecycle by 2030, um, just 10 years from now. Um, so there, that's, you know, incredible for them as well. So, um, that being said, you know, let's let's acknowledge the fact that Microsoft and Apple are companies that are incredibly successful. They have huge amounts of cash stockpiled. So these transitions are not easy. They're not necessarily cheap, but they are crucial and they are necessary um, for the survival of our species. So they they are you know they should be applauded and they should also you know you should also be thinking about you know how would you do this in your own company? Um, it is it is difficult. Um, and, you know, let's talk about other companies who are doing this in other ways. So, like, for example, Starbucks, they had a movement recently where they, they made this um, morally um, very, you know, righteous uh, declare, declaration, which they said, we will no longer have plastic straws at Starbucks. And they got huge amounts of applause for that. Um, and, you know, everyone was, like, super happy about it. And now, you know, did they really do anything, though? Like, the, the thing is, okay, I think it was – it's potentially a case of greenwashing. Because they're going to get a lot of good vibes, good good uh, PR for this. But is is plastic straws really like the thing that's killing our planet? It's definitely a, it's definitely a step in the right direction. Let me let me say, say that I definitely would applaud that. But let's just think about you know what is what are people's announcements versus what is the actual impact that's having? Yeah. So um, what I'll say, uh, a criticism that I have of Apple is that even though they're claiming to be carbon neutral, the way that their products are designed, they're like super sleek. You can't even replace the battery yourself. Like if you get your battery replaced at the Apple store, it costs like $80. That's totally ridiculous. And if you replace the battery yourself, you void the warranty. And I think that is not great. Like if you really want to reduce your environmental impact, I honestly think like especially with electronics, being able to make these things last for as long as possible has a huge environmental impact due to like the, especially the ethical issues around um, mining for things that are used in like circuit boards. And a lot of e-waste is sent abroad to India where they basically like dunk them in vats of acid and then just extract the copper because that's the most valuable thing. And that's like, that's not a good long-term solution. Um, I think they have something where they have like a robot that's used to disassemble it, but but also like that's also not. I I just I find it to be a little bit disingenuous because at the end of the day, if you really cared about the life cycle impact of your products, you would try to make them last as long as possible. I think the one company that is actually doing a pretty good job at this is um, Patagonia. 
um, the apparel company, they basically like, even if you had these shorts that are like 20 years old, they're kind of ratty. You send them in, they'll repair it for you and then send it back to you. And you're like, oh, cool. Now I have this cool patch and I can continue wearing these shorts for another 20 years. And they take that very seriously. Um, I think electronic companies um, are not yet at that level, but I hope to see them doing that. So Kelly, you you brought up the product lifecycle of companies like Apple, but what also really stood out to me in Apple was um, their plans to reduce carbon emissions within the supply chain. And you kind of you brought up how there's unethical practices within the supply chain for companies like Apple. But I just wanted to know what would that even look like to reduce carbon emissions on the supply chain for a company that has consistently practiced such unethical practices in that side of the business. And is that something, is that a good faith statement that we can get behind? Or are they just kind of saying it and it's not really going to come to fruition? So what I will say is that um, carbon is just one piece of the environmental puzzle, right? I think the boutique mining for cobalt by children in the DRC is really low carbon because you're just having these kids walk around trying to pick out the cobalt. That's like super low carbon. That's not ethical, but it is low carbon. So I think the fact, I think it, it might almost be a distraction from like, I mean, I do want to assume good faith and that they're trying to do this for the right reasons, but I will say like these ethical issues are different from the carbon issue. And we need to continue to hold companies accountable for all the ethical issues, not just carbon, I think maybe we've gone too far in focusing on only carbon. Yeah, I think that's totally right. It's like, um, it's like it kind of goes back to what we said in a previous episode where we talked about carbon emissions and there's also environmental problems. And those are not necessarily one and the same. Often they are, but um, not always, like a, to Kelly's point. Yeah. So I think if they want to reduce their supply chain emissions, they're like, okay, we're going to, let's say they have these ships to ship the cobalt from the DRC to China. Maybe they'll switch the ships to being um, lower emission and get rid of like the really, really dirty ones, or they'll just purchase offsets. Um, so, I mean, in terms of just like decarbonizing your whole supply chain, I honestly don't think it's really that difficult. But when we're really talking about like how to, I mean, it, it, is, it is difficult, but it's not, it's not as difficult, I think, to these companies as like seriously, critically looking at the life cycle impact of their products and especially the end of life and especially e-waste. I think that's a big unsolved and underrated problem. Um, so Stephen was also mentioning the uh, straws from uh, Starbucks earlier. So I think what ended up happening is that they had this new uh, lid design where you can basically drink without a straw and actually the amount of uh, plastic that's created plastic waste that's created by that was actually greater than like the version with the straw so i'm yeah, like but they're not straws uh, though they're not straws though so <laughs> i would as, also as a former employee of starbucks i would like to mention they aren't new caps they were always there they were just the cold foam caps uh this is completely unimportant but i just it, like every time i hear it i'm like i have to correct it <laughs> <laughs> no no I, th I think that's a it's a good correction because i think they they want to they are acting like it's this huge deal when in reality I'm like okay if you really wanted to reduce your plastic waste you could increase the cost of getting a disposable cup to some crazy amount like yeah, I yeah. mean you could increase the prices of like everything by one dollar and then say you can get one dollar off your Starbucks if you bring your own mug 
And then because I think a, that would Starbucks actually... Starbucks offers reusable mugs, but they just don't really market them that well. And the reusable mugs are really cute, too. And having everyone with their, like, cute, like, Starbucks mugs everywhere, I like, they are very nice. Like, those normal Starbucks cups are pretty, like... You know, you know, there's all the hoopla and controversy about, like, the like, holiday cups. But um, I think the actual mugs that they have, some of them have, like, cityscape designs of, like, Seattle, um, various other designs that I think are legitimately, like, I purchased them to use at home because they are actually aesthetically pleasing. And I think they should actually just have a marketing campaign where they tell people to use them. For every big city, for every major city, there's a Starbucks and they have a different cityscape for it. And I know there's people that love collecting them. So if they just marketed that a bit more like maybe like a what, what's that place? Uh, the guitar with the bears. Uh, Hard Rock Cafe. If they did like a Hard Rock Cafe thing where it's like, oh, this is this cool thing you could collect everywhere. And they really pushed that. Um, maybe that would be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for the segment that Ted Yoho doesn't have a lot of nice things to say about. It's the Green New Spiel. Cool. All right. So my green new spiel is um, this actually happened, I think, two weeks ago now. Um, but the Ohio House Representative, um, sorry, the Ohio Speaker of the House, um, his name is um, Larry Larry Householder. Yes, he um, was recently arrested on racketeering uh, charges and over sixty million dollars of corruption. Um, so essentially what happened was, yeah, once again, an oil or a coal or fossil fuels, um, you know, lobbying group again has just, they just threw dark money at this, um, political person to get their bill passed. At the end of the day, what you need to know is that it was a bailout. Um, they, they offered him over $60 million, um, of a bribe. Essentially it was, was quid, quid pro quo, um, for, for him to help pass this bill it would bail out all the failing coal companies and the failing nuclear plants. Um, and this is, you know, to our points from before, coal and nuclear are economically terrible as well as environmentally terrible. So, I mean, those are two separate things, right? They're, they're failing as a business on their own and they're also terrible for our society. So why are we trying to keep them alive in the first place? And at the end of the day, it's because powerful people have vested interests in that. Um, so he was sentenced to, to prison um, and... Uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Well, I'm glad that justice was done, but it's unfortunate that this bill passed in the first place. Um, it, this, this has real ramifications. It, it has, um, it caused several solar and wind companies in Ohio to go bankrupt because they couldn't compete with these like giant subsidies. Um, and it, you know, the, the, the Ohio, uh, consumers of electricity, that's the, the ratepayers are the ones that will be suffering because they will continue to pay more money for, for lower quality energy that also um, hurts their 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 wind, uh, their, their air and their water, um, ultimately impacting their health. So it's just it's just a shame that this all happened in the first place. But um, I'm hoping that this will be a step um, towards justice and progress. Cool. Um, so I can do my green news spiel. There's this new project called Climate Trace, um, which was started uh, by. Al Gore and the startup called Wattime. So Wattime actually was started by a Berkeley PhD student who dropped out of his PhD to start this uh, non-profit. Basically, it's a not-for-profit company, but basically, um, yeah, go Bears. And that's something that we can say about whether or not it's a, a good idea for Steven to pursue his PhD if he wants to start a business. <laughs> 
<laughs> the successful bits. Hey, Elon Musk also dropped out of his Stanford PhD on like the fifth day. I think this guy did it. He he did. He was there for I think maybe a year, year and a half, and he took leave and then just left forever. Um, so the thing that watch time is I think best known for is that they provide these emission signals um, that are used by um, energy storage operators, particularly in California. You have to use this signal to prove that you're reducing your emissions. I think about a year or two ago, they started this new project to measure the greenhouse gas emissions of every single power plant in real time. And now they're working with a bunch of other um, organizations to basically have a centralized place where they use satellite data, machine learning, um, and just like other types of observations to basically measure like all the emissions all around the world all the time. And Al Gore um, is a big part of kind of getting the groups together to do this. This is very interesting because one of the big um, arguments at these UN climate meetings is basically like, oh, who's in charge of tracking the data? We don't know. Like, are these com- are these countries tracking it in good faith? Are they doing a good job? And you, if you have a nonprofit that's literally just tracking it from satellite data and they don't have any vested interest either way, that kind of removes that whole complexity from the equation. So I think that would be huge. And this can help people identify where the emissions are coming from and where more action needs to be taken. And so I think this is kind of one of the promises of big data is that we can use better data to make better decisions, more information. Um, and I think this is really exciting. They're still in like very prototype phase. They're like, we have basically like a f- prototype machine learning model where we can like put in some data. Um, so they just announced it. I think by the time that the next UN climate conference rolls around by next November, because it was postponed due to COVID, But that means that they just have more time to get this ready for the next conference when all the countries are going to be tightening their targets. I think it'll be a really big deal. So I'm excited to see where it goes. All right. Well, thank you, Stephen and Kelly, for your green news spiels. And with that, we wrap up the segment and we wrap up the show. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Renewable Generation. Feel free to reach out on any platform. There's a lot of avenues to do so now. We have a Facebook, The Renewable Generation. We have a Twitter, at GenRenewPod. And you can always just leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Or just DM me directly on Instagram. (laughs) You heard it here first. DM Kelly MJing or uh, Sustainably Steve. Or Honeycombs Jr. On uh, Instagram. (laughs) Or Honeycombs Jr. Yes. Slide into those DMs. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Mm